When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello, hello. Happy President's Day. We wanted to get this season started with a discussion about something critically important. And what could be more critical than the period called the critical period? But why was it so critical? Critical of what? Critical of whom? Today, we discuss America at possibly its most fragile moment, how it led to the Constitution, and how George Washington was central to all of it. With Dr. Doug Bradburn. This is Too Complicated for History. Season 2. We're joined by the John and Adrian Mars president and CEO of Mount Vernon and also a well-known historian, Dr. Douglas Bradburn. Thanks for being here with us today, Doug. It's great to see you guys again. Yeah, it's great to see you too. For those of you who are just podcast listeners and don't pay attention to the rest of Primary Source Media's works, we um, have worked with and been at Mount Vernon several times uh, in, the, in the last couple of years, um, but we're very excited to be talking to Doug today. Yeah, and today we're going to talk about um, the U.S. Constitution. Um, but what I wanted to talk about first, because I feel like it's something that we kind of ignore, or it's one of those things that you know it existed and then you move on, is the Articles of Confederation, that there was something before the Constitution. But I feel like it's not really talked about or, um, you know, a part of school curriculum. So... Can you talk about what exactly the Articles of Confederation were and sort of what was the plan of government under them? Yeah, well, thank you very much. What an exciting subject for this uh, launch of your second season of your wonderful podcast, the forms of government. How are we governed? We are in a presidential year where we will help select our new executive leader. One of the things our first uh, situation of government didn't have was an executive. And the Articles of Confederation is what you asked me about. Uh, the Articles of Confederation are essentially, it's a, a treaty of friendship between 13 sovereign states. Uh, and it was our original alliance of the different states. So in this country, uh, of course, we declared independence. Uh, so we had this thing called the Continental Congress. And it was just a group of colonies had sent these representatives and they uh, were, you know, uh, complaining to Parliament. They eventually started fighting a war against the British forces. They took over the army. George Washington was appointed a commander in chief. All this was done before there was any kind of formal government between all these different colonies in rebellion, essentially. So you have the 13 original British colonies in rebellion, fighting a war. And then it isn't until, of course, the uh, June of, of, uh, of 1776, there's a motion made by Richard Henry Lee of Virginia at the Continental uh, Congress. And he says, 
I'm moving that we are by all rights, free and independent states. And, uh, and everybody agreed. Okay, that's what we'll do. And so let's draft a declaration of independence. Well, there's actually three committees that came out of Lee's resolution. And uh, one of them drafted the Declaration of Independence. And that's the famous one that gets all the love and attention. And the other committee drafted the Articles of Confederation, a, a, an agreement of union. And in fact, for many people at the Continental Congress, that was the most important committee. Like the Declaration, yes, we got to formally tell everybody that we're declaring that we're independent. But the thing that really matters is how are we going to govern ourselves at this moment. So the Articles Committee, which was chaired by John Dickinson, I believe, Delaware's own John Dickinson, um, famous as the guy who wrote letters from a Pennsylvania farmer, even though he was from Delaware, hard for the people of Delaware to celebrate that achievement. But at any rate, um, you know, they're probably all Eagles fans nowadays anyway, so who cares, right? Uh, but so the Articles of Confederation came out of this committee. It was formed at the same time that we decided to declare independence because you got to have a government. In fact, John Adams, I think, argued that you have to have a government before you declare independence. Um, but apparently he lost that vote uh, and they put him on the declaration committee. Right. So at any rate, um, so it would so take it too long created, to have him on the other one, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this one took a long time, too. So basically, the Articles of Confederation weren't ratified. Uh, first of all, by the Congress, that the Continental Congress agreed to the to the articles, you know, which is a series of articles, which is basically saying this is a league of friendship. All the states retain their sovereignty, except in these cases. And, you know, it kind of lays it out pretty, pretty uh, straightforward. It was agreed to by the Continental Congress in 77, I think in the fall of 77. And then it wasn't formally adopted by all the states because it had to be unanimously agreed to. And that wasn't done until March of 1781. So the war went on and on for years without a formal government uh, running things. And, and in 1781, of course, is the year of the Battle of Yorktown. So the Articles gets in at the good part, at the you know at the big victory, uh, and then and then that government lasts. This treaty lasts until uh, the ratification of the Constitution of the United States. So it lasts officially from 1781 until 1789 when the new government under the constitution comes into effect. So what is it? Is you're going to be your next question, I guess. <laughs> yeah, pr pr pretty much. Cause it, it is definitely something that gets skipped over. To be honest, I, until this conversation had no idea that they were drafted at the same time as the declaration of independence. That's new yeah. information to me. <laughs> um, but I guess it makes sense well, that that was the important though, Think about it though, Isaac, cause here's the situation. It's like, we're going to declare independence, but right. what are we becoming? You know, right. Uh, and, and that was kind of one of the things that delayed that that vote on independence. Which shouldn't we establish some sort of more formal government and then declare? So there's a lot of moving parts going on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I guess the, the declaration is more of a press release than anything else. And then, the you know, they can, yeah, the articles actually yeah. are doing something. Right? It should right. be studied in media classes. It's a brilliant press release. I know you've already talked about the declaration, <laughs> but, it, you know, it is uh, it is exactly that. It's a press release that keeps on giving, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> So there's a particular name for this. I, I, we, yeah, well, well, I think we can get into what the is actually in the articles and specificity, but there's a title for this period that I, I think yeah. it's important for us to, to talk about so people know. It's called the critical period. Um, yeah, could you give us some insight as to why it was critical or it is critical? Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, so um, 
I actually just did an edited volume called Reconsidering the Critical Period with my mm-hmm. colleague, uh, Chris Pearl. And one of the, the, the critical period is a term of art invented by a historian, a particular historian uh, named Fisk in writing in the 19th century hmm. to describe this period basically from the ending of the war for independence and the constitution. So it was called the critical period. Uh, and so that was taken up by many, many historians. And Fisk had lived through the Civil War, and he said, of all the period in American history, this was the most critical. Meaning, uh, in his case, uh, it was critical because he thought there, there was it was a real astonishing thing that the country actually survived this period. It was so critical that if, if the right things hadn't happened, i.e. if a new constitution hadn't come along uh, in the Constitutional Convention, then the country would have fallen apart. And it would have experienced what he called a, a European outcome, which in the middle of the 19th century, he meant a lot of warring uh, mm. independent nations that would essentially, you know, use up all the, their energy and population in fighting each other constantly, uh, which his experience of Europe was in the mid 19th century. Sure. You know, this is um, and of course, you know, everybody's experience of Europe would be that through World War Two, essentially, that Europe had been a fight for control and power between these various large states and small states, you know, for as long as anybody could remember. In fact, the British's whole policy was the balance of power of Europe, you know, making sure that Spain or France didn't take over all of Europe or then ultimately letting Germany take over all of Europe. And so it was a fight to make sure Europe didn't become controlled by one power. Whereas in the American case, uh, Fisk is basically saying, America creates this lasting union, the Constitution, which is a union of perpetual peace amongst these states in the United States. And so you don't have these massive ongoing wars. Of course, he says that we lived through the Civil War. That was one major thing, which is something that I think he thought would have happened many, many more times uh, under the Articles of Confederation, because the Articles was a weak confederation, essentially a weak alliance it claimed that it would be a perpetual alliance between the sovereign states who declared independence. But, I mean, you could say you're perpetual, but that doesn't mean it's going to last. Right. Right. And it's important to note that before the revolution, people were, they, they looked at their states sort of as their country. So they'd say, I'm a Virginian, I'm a Pennsylvanian, how important that was to their identity. So that, you know, they didn't say I'm part of a, you know, United States. It's, yes, I'm yeah. a Virginian. That's right. And I don't think people called the United States by a single until well after the Civil War. I mean, the United States hmm. are versus the United States is. Uh, it was the Articles of Confederation that first called the United States the United States, said this confederation will be called the United States. Because there's lots of confederations, right? So these guys are students of history and they're lawyers and they're interested in in other kinds of confederacies that have existed. They're mostly looking towards like, you know, the Holy Roman Empire and the ancient Greek confederacies and uh, the Hanseatic League, you know, um, the United Republic of the Netherlands is a confederacy of sovereign states, you know. Um, So they they have examples in mind when they're creating uh, the United States. In fact, the United Provinces of the, the Netherlands, when John Adams publishes in Europe, the charter of the, the Articles of Confederation, he has in that, that book a copy of the United Provinces 
of uh, the Netherlands was one of the models that he's comparing it to at the time, which was, nice. a, you know, I think seven provinces of, of, of Netherlands, which declared their independence from Spain back in the 16th century. <laughs> right. Huh. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. We've actually, yeah, we, we actually had a, um, uh, worked with uh, one of our researchers early on in, in, in a documentary project was, was Dutch. And, and yeah. did his um, thesis on on the Dutch Patriots. So, relatively familiar, weirdly enough. <laughs> well, one of the most this is a tangent, which I know you guys like to get into. But so one of the um, uh, what, the Motley's book, uh, the rise and fall, the du- the rise of the Dutch Republic. I think it was the rise of the Dutch Republic. Mm-hmm. Guy named um, last name Motley. It's one of the most popular books in nineteenth century America, uh, and in, in it, and he's describing the Dutch Revolt. He, he he uses the American Revolution as sort of a counterpoint. Like he'll say, like William of Orange was the George Washington of you know the Dutch Revolt, and so uh, as a way for people to understand like their importance in the in that thing. But um, yeah, yeah for- that comparison, that early comparison of the Dutch Revolt and the American Revolution was was one of the things that people used to try to understand what the hell is going on. Um, yeah, from from uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar. Uh, by the time the Civil War came around, there there was no Dutch Republic. It was it had become a kingdom again, and it still remains one. Weirdly enough, yes, <laughs> that's that is weird. Yeah, because it was tried <laughs> by Napoleon, who created one of these client states called the Batavian Republic, and then that uh, ultimately was overthrown and that turned into the kingdom of yeah. whatever it's called. Yeah, they, they, yeah. So if you're ever, if, you know in the Netherlands, they have a king. <laughs> Um, so it, in the, when you say loose, we you know, I, we, and strong yeah. and weak, what does yes. that actually mean in terms of mm. uh, of a relationship between these political entities that were states at the time? Well, that's a really that's a tough question, a good question because you're right they they're they're odd words to use, but essentially, what I mean is that um, the central government, the central authority, doesn't have an ability really to coerce um, the um, the participant states or the individuals of those states. So if you're a citizen of Virginia, the Article of Confederation really can do nothing to you. It can't tax you. It can't enlist you. All that has to be mediated through the state itself. So the individual relationship to the articles is pretty much nil. I mean, there's some provisions in there that that says that you should have the same rights if you're a Virginian and you go to Pennsylvania but there's really no way to enforce that. There's no judiciary. There's no executive power. There's no executive branch. Uh, there's really a very limited legislative authority as well. So um, the articles really constrains, uh, you know, what, what central authority there is to be about things like declaring war, sending ambassadors. I mean, it, it's going to establish, you know, weights and measures. Uh, it's going to establish the value of gold. Um, but it's not going to create a unified monetary policy or anything like that. It's going to allow the states to continue to basically do everything they've been doing as colonies under the British Empire, actually more power than as colonies. They're going to be proper independent states that can pretty much run their internal life completely without any um, you know, any influence from any outside power. So that's what I mean. It's loose in that sense. Um, and... Uh, and and we'll find during the critical period, so-called, uh, it's very weak. It's unable to even enforce what the states are supposed and obligated to do under 
under the article's agreement. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. It's just to, uh, you said you sort of brushed over something that I wanted to point out. So the articles are the reason we don't use a metric system. You know, they established you know, <laughs> system of weights and measures. Yeah, it was the first group not to choose the metric system. Many others have chosen not to follow the metric system. Yeah, no, no. Well, Isaac, you're too young to know, but when I was growing up in in, uh, in grade school, they were preparing us all for the great change to metric, which was was always just around the corner. And that's when we have those rulers that have inches on one side and centimeters on the other side. I mean, you're never going to find a ruler like that anywhere but in the United States. Uh, right, right. I, you don't know how many times I've asked Siri calculations of liquids and things like that now. And I guess you don't need to switch oh, yeah, over. thank it just, goodness for those. Know, it can just, the phone just tells me what I, <laughs> what I need to know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but the articles can be blamed for many, many things, but I think uh, not adopting <laughs> the metric system is not quite one of them. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, glad, glad we cleared that up. Yeah. <laughs> So it sounds like what you're saying is because of how loosely the articles um, sort of attached all of the different states, if there was a debt, say, from the war to pay back, it would be out of this, the goodness of the hearts of each state to offer up what they want to, yeah. essentially. So like instead of just paying your taxes, you'd say, they'd say, can we have some money? And you'd say, all right, I'll give you this much. That's and so, right. of course, yeah. it's hard to raise a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, the Articles of Confederation say, you know, that the obligations of the United States would have to be paid uh, and that the requisitions from the states will be decided upon by the representatives of the states that would meet in Congress. Uh, so, the, you, you know, but enforcing it became uh, really impossible. There was no way to enforce it. So it wasn't a real tax. It was literally an alliance you know, you know, like NATO, you know, where mm -hmm. where certain member states of NATO are supposed to pay a certain amount of their budget every year to cover, you know, um, the expense of NATO. But they don't do it. They don't always do it. And mm -hmm. uh, and similar situation here, like the Congress that meets has representatives from every state. Now, no more, no less than two from each state, no more than seven, but they only get one vote. So that's the other thing. So mm -hmm. the Articles Congress Basically, each state has an equal vote, but you can send up to seven people, but the state has to pay for their time, you know, when they're doing their work. And so that Congress would meet and it would come up with a policy, say, OK, we're going to, you know, we're going to spend this amount of money on the army this year. And each state would be divided up what they were owed based on their population and their wealth. And we'll get into this because this is important. This is so how do you know, like Rhode Island's a tiny state. Obviously, they don't have to pay the same amount that Virginia has to pay. It's a sure. massive state. And so the Congress would decide who has to pay what. And then if the state doesn't pay it, what, what do you do? You ask them to pay it the next year. You ask them to pay it the year <laughs> after that. So what happens after the war is over, now the war is, you know, once the war is won, it becomes harder and harder to get the states, A, to send representatives to it in a timely fashion. In many mm. cases, they don't even have enough states, so they can't do any business. It, it becomes very hard to amend the articles because one of the things they need to try to get is this taxation power. This is fundamental. Any government of its worth its salt can tax people and raise to raise a revenue to do the things that it's trying to do, like you know pay the army. Right. And so the Articles Confederation uh, it goes on to show that it's very, very weak 
at, at getting this these monies in. What it's good at doing is it's good at creating a forum for all these different uh, colonies to come together and to solve some intractable problems that you know that don't require a ton of money immediately, at least. Uh, like who's going to get to share in Western lands? You know, mm-hmm. all the colonies have got these claims of Western lands going back to their royal charters or whatever. And so now all of a sudden the United States as a whole, some, some of these states have land claims, some don't. This becomes a forum whereby these colonies can agree to give up their claims, give them up to the whole, give them up hmm. to the United States. So Virginia, for instance, has land claims, you know, that go to the Mississippi River. It's all the Ohio Valley. It's all this stuff. Virginia ultimately, through the working of the Articles of Confederation, gives up a lot of these land claims to create the first, um, you know, federal territory. And the Articles of Confederation has to govern those federal territories. So the Northwest Ordinance, for instance, is one of the things that is created under the auspices of the Articles, which is really brilliant and probably one of the most important pieces of legislation ever created because it creates a process of settling that territory. Um, of course, forgetting all any Native American claims. I mean, that's, you know, that, that they, they don't have much interest in that, uh, except for, you know, it has to be done by treaties negotiated by the United States of America. But the Northwest Ordinance forbids slavery in the area north of the Ohio River. It hmm. provides a process whereby uh, the, the land can be settled and also a process whereby the people in that territory can write their own constitution and then become a part ultimately to the Articles of Confederation. They can come on as a state. As a, as a free and equal state. That's a really revolutionary and, and transformative um, moment because it ends slavery in, in Northwest Ohio, which is crucial. We'll talk about that, I think. But also providing a way f- that you're not creating colonies, you're right. creating right. the potentially new free and equal states. That's something the British Empire never figured out how to do. If they had simply figured that out, there might, might not have ever been a, a revolutionary war. Yeah, that must have been pretty, relatively novel because – there's no models to look at that. It's not like the Holy Roman Empire or, you know, any of those things were functioned in that manner. It's interesting. That's right. You, you got to go back to like, you know, ancient stuff and random examples of like when Syracuse was made part of some Greek confederacy or something, <laughs> uh, which happened. I mean, it's got the name for it. But, you know, uh, yeah, it, it was it was really novel in the 18th century. But it, it is it is a and it was adopted. It was one of the first piece of legislation adopted by the new Congress under the Constitution. The Northwest Ordinance was made part of, you know, the, the American code, essentially, hmm. moving forward. And it, beca- it was a system which allowed the United States of America to ultimately dominate the continent because they could settle areas without the problems of colonies. Hmm. Uh, these areas would be settled and then they would be, they would write a Constitution, they'd petition to come in and they would come in ultimately to, you know, to the United States as, as states, as equal states. And it was, uh, it really was a remarkable uh, willingness to, you know, to, to spread out power. Because um, hmm. most people don't want colonies to have the same power as the mother country because they're colonies. I mean, if we ever send people to Mars, you know, you want to make them equal to Earth? I mean, no, come on. It's just a bunch of Martians. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that's the. <laughs> this is going to get into a very different kind of audience, but that's the entire <laughs> plot of the anime Gundam. I mean, I don't know if it. <laughs> I don't know that. But I, yes, uh, it could be. Um, yeah, but it, it is. It is yeah. really a remarkable thing. We don't. We we take it for granted. We're like, obviously, you know, these people would move there, then they'd become the state from the former territory. Hmm. I mean, that's not obvious. It wasn't obvious to any European. Uh, empire that sent out colonies. They never figured it out. So. Right. so sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. You mentioned something about um, amending. So obviously that's actually cool to learn that there's something good that came out of the articles as opposed to, you know, yeah. just, just getting totally like, hey, they were terrible and we needed to get that those papers out. Well, of there, we but... won the war. We won the war of independence under the articles. So yeah. that's a pretty big, big, big notch for the articles. You know, yeah. they're one and up. Oh, you know, they, they had no losses. <laughs> and they retired up. Like it's champions. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hang up the jersey is exactly right. Yeah. Um, but you did, you mentioned a word, um, amend, right? You know, yeah. it was very yeah. difficult to amend. Was there a methodology? Because obviously that's a big part of the Constitution, you know, being yeah. able to add things yeah. to it. Um, was there a method for amending the articles? And you said it was difficult. So there, there was. And it, it, the amendments to the articles initially required 13, required unanimous votes wow. to amend. No, oh, that's not good. Yeah. And that's why they couldn't that's get the taxation power ever put in there. Yep. Now, there were some kinds of later, uh, some articles that they could amend with nine votes out of 13. That was a change that was agreed to, to make a, an easier to amend. And that gives a model for when the, when the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution is drafted, being aware that there's going to be a need to amend this thing. And, uh, you know, the amendment process should be hard, but not impossible, I think was the thinking there and it's gotten harder i think than they intended it to become there was an effort to to get a tax provision passed which would have been um an opportunity to uh, accept customs duties right so and the problem was the port of new york you know received a massive amount of customs duties like the ships would come into new york but they're not coming into new jersey say right and so new york state of new york did not want to give up the revenue of customs that are coming into the port of New York. And so there was an effort to amend the Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, and ultimately it was vetoed by New York. Hmm. So it couldn't be done. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton, you know, thought about leading a movement to secede the city of New York from the state of New York so that uh, they that the Confederation could ultimately get that revenue. And that ultimately was played out again in the, uh, in the ratification debates over the Constitution, mm-hmm. Hamilton uh, was saying, look, the Constitution had already been ratified at that point by nine states out of the 13 that were required, which was written into the new Constitution. And Hamilton was saying if New York State doesn't ratify the Constitution, he would they would separate the, the port out, the city of New York out and, and join the Constitution that way. So this fight over the ports and who controlled the revenue of the ports was uh, was a critical thing in that early hmm. in that early period. Anyway, so the articles could never get past the finish line on an amendment to to be able to collect taxes, and that led to all sorts of challenges in uh, in the critical period in the 1780s. Somebody obviously thought that it wasn't working because when they decided to have what we now call the Constitutional Convention, they were actually just gathering to fix or amend the articles. 
there was obviously something wrong. <laughs> so I am curious, actually, how do we get to the point of that convention? Because, you know, the, the Constitutional right. Convention is something that, you know, everyone's not, well, not maybe not everyone, but a lot of most of our listeners have heard of um, mm-hmm. and are relatively familiar with. But, you know, they get basically like we got to do something. Was it that same group of guys that are representing yeah. the states for the articles? Is there is it a different group of guys like yeah. this all? How did that play yeah, out? That's a good question. It's um so James Madison early on, who we all know now is called the father of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. But he was first, he was a delegate from Virginia to the the Congress, you know, the mm-hmm. Congress of the Articles of Confederation Congress, so basically the legislative body. And he basically said the thing was a, a weak um, and failing uh, remnant in that, by 1784, so right after the war, <laughs> because people weren't even showing up at the Congress to like mm-hmm. do the business of Congress. And, and what was happening, he would go on, Madison would go on to write something called the vices of the political system, which is essentially mm-hmm. a catalog of problems that had, had been happening in the 1780s. And they ranged from, of course, an insurrection in Massachusetts, which couldn't be put down uh, without, you know, basically the states voluntarily organizing themselves. There was no, federal army. There was no way to raise an army. Um, so you had, you know, an insurrection. But along the way, you saw all sorts of things like states would be passing laws, uh, massive amounts of laws that they uh, that they wouldn't enforce the, the laws that they passed. So essentially becoming what we would call a banana republics, these republics that, you know, create laws and then they never enforce laws. They, um, the power of uh, taxation in the states states would essentially uh, pass money bills. So essentially they would print money to pay uh, taxes. Uh, you know, they would inflate the dollar, the different dollars in the different states. Like Rhode Island was the worst of these. They would just print money over and over again and they would uh, make all debts payable in this new thing. So they were destroying the value of property from the perspective of people who owned property. From the people who wanted property was great. Um, and debtors because they wouldn't have to pay their debts in, in anything but this in, inflated currency. The borders of the United States could not be maintained at all uh, because there was no army, hmm. no army that could be paid for. The treaty provisions under the articles of, of the end of the war could not be enforced. So the British still actually owned a number of forts uh, in what was you know, legally by treaty, the United States, but in fact, the British army were still camped basically there in Detroit and in other places in, in the Ohio Valley. There was no way to uh, have any good trade agreements with any states in Europe. So for instance, a lot of the commerce of New England states was, was selling things to the West Indies. Well, the British wouldn't allow that to happen anymore after independence mm. because the British had a mercantile system and they're not going to allow foreigners to trade in their colonies. And these New Englanders, all their business had been basically developed within the British Empire, was now sort of collapsing and falling in upon itself. And so you had a flight also of gold out of the United States to Europe. And so the economy in the United States was collapsing and there was no way to revive it, essentially. And all these things are happening sort of simultaneously. And, you know, and it's everybody who's interested in improving the articles comes at it from a different direction. Uh, Some of them are more concerned about the debt crisis. Some of them are more concerned about the lack of ability to raise taxes. Some of them are concerned about the lack of a foreign policy that makes any sense. 
And George Washington, uh, from his vantage point, he, think, he thinks that everything is starting to verge towards what he calls anarchy and chaos. Um, hmm. You know, and that is um, that's kind of the perspective of what we'll call the Federalists. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a name they gave themselves because they're interested in what they call federal matters. They're not interested in local matters and local prejudices, which is what they consider the states to be obsessed with. So when they say federal, they mean the Articles of Confederation, the federal system. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's the area we need to think more federally. We need to think about our union. We can't focus solely on what's only impacting uh, our local states. Hmm. So these federalists, to get to your question, Isaac, are the ones that are really leading uh, the charge Mm -hmm. to uh, improve the Articles of Confederation. Really, as Lynn said, to think about ways to amend it was the first way people were thinking about it. Right. So how did how did we go from that? How did we go from amending to let's just throw it out? Let's yeah. just do something yeah. different. Yeah. The, the road, the road, as <laughs> everything goes right through Mount Vernon. It's the Mount Vernon Compact is the first step along this challenge. So, okay, so what are you talking about? What is that? Well, George Washington becomes president of a company called the Potomac Navigation Company. Mm-hmm. That he, James Madison, gets the piece of legislation passed through uh, Virginia. Another person gets it passed through the state of Maryland. And they create the first corporate entity that's incorporated in two states hmm. in the United States. It's called the Mount. It's called the, the Potomac Navigation Company. Oh wow! And the point of the Potomac Company is to improve the navigation of the Potomac River into the Ohio Valley. So to improve it means they're going to take out boulders, they're going to take out trees, they're going to dredge it, and in areas where you know there's like the falls of the Potomac, the Great Falls. They're going to create a big canal system to go around the falls. So it's a company that's raising money and selling shares in this company to improve the Potomac, the navigability of the Potomac. George Washington believes this is the solution to the crisis of the West. All these people have moved west of the Appalachian Mountains. What's going to happen to them? They've got no connection to the people in the east uh, because all their rivers flow to the Mississippi, which is controlled by the Spanish and or all the rivers can go up to the Great Lakes, which is controlled by the British. So how do you make sure these Americans who move west don't just become Spanish or become British? Well, they got to have some kind of economic tie to the east. And that's the idea of the Potomac Navigation Company. Ah, aha, wonderful. But the problem is the law is very unclear in terms of who controls the Potomac. Maryland has got jurisdiction over a lot of it, but not all of it. And then if you've got crime on the Potomac and commercial differences on the Potomac, what is the legal authority? So the state of Maryland and the state of Virginia call for a convention of the two states to meet in Alexandria, which George Washington, in his sneaky, wily way, he makes them meet at Mount Vernon. And those commissioners, those commissioners from each state are here at Mount Vernon. And George Washington's like looking over their shoulder. He's not a commissioner. <laughs> He's the president of this company. And they, they hammer out the rules, the legal rules by which the convention, by which the two states would deal with issues related to the Potomac. And it's a great success. And so it's such a success. One of the commissioners was, of course, James Madison. Uh, they say, well, let's meet. Let's get a bunch of states to do the same thing about all their trade issues and we'll meet next year in Annapolis in Maryland. And that's the Annapolis convention, which only six states go to, but one of the people who goes to it is Alexander Hamilton, 
one is Madison. And they say, well, this is a bust. There's not enough people here to really get anything done. So let's meet next year in Philadelphia. But let's also talk about amendments to the whole thing. And so that's the origins of the Philadelphia Convention of 1787. It comes right out of George Washington's company, the Potomac Navigation Company, and the Mount Vernon Compact. So, so that's it. So they, so they go to Philadelphia with a bunch of ideas of how to revise this. Got to love the gumption of a group of guys who try to do something <laughs> one year and don't accomplish it. And are like, you know what? We got to aim higher. We, gotta yeah. do, we, should be, we should be trying to do more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Isaac, it's exactly right because they, you know, Annapolis was just supposed to be like a, a meeting to talk about trade, and and Philadelphia obviously becomes something much, much bigger. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. I don't know why the, this is tracking back a little bit in earlier in our conversation, but the when you're saying like the oh after Independence, New England wasn't able to trade with the West Indies. I don't know why it reminded me of the, I don't know if you've seen The Office, but when Michael Scott leaves yeah. to start his own paper company yeah. <laughs> like reminded me a little bit of like that like oh how yep. do we great now we're independent yeah. what are we supposed to do now oh yeah we're, we're shocked <laughs> shocked you're treating us like foreigners yeah right they basically said we're foreigners right. yeah yeah that's there's yeah it's the old i'm surprised there's you know i can't believe i'm being affected by the consequences of my decisions <laughs> right exactly so yeah. that that paints a pretty good picture of um you know how they how we got there um, to 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 the to the convention in Philadelphia, um, but at the, so at the convention they still showed up to just amend. Yeah, well, um, and in fact, and, and it was you know a legitimately uh, legal arrangement because uh, the Congress of the Articles of Confederation approved of the meeting in Philadelphia mm, okay. to propose amendments, limited approval to propose okay. amendments to the confederation because the idea was like look we can't do this at one of our regular meetings we got the northwest ordinance and the fact is nobody ever comes to these meetings so we got we, we got to call a special meeting of the the eminent men of america to come to philadelphia and everybody knows my god we got to get george washington there because mm -hmm. if he shows up then it's then everybody will show up and it will look like it's a real deal he didn't go to annapolis so he only got five states and, and that was always part of the issue with it. Now, Washington himself, as you know, he famously resigned his commission. He's not going to do any public work anymore. And so he doesn't want to do this. He, you know, he's like, his mom is sick. He's got to do that. The crops are going to come to in. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Crops. He's a farmer. I don't want to do this. My <laughs> reputation is pretty spotless. Uh, why would I want to do this? It sounds like a mess. Mm -hmm. But he, but he is hearing all these reports about Shays' Rebellion. I mean, stuff's falling apart. Look at these crazy laws just passed by North Carolina. You know, all these debtors are just going to be able to run wild. Um, you know, the people out west are doing whatever the hell they're doing. We've got no way to enforce the treaty. You know, it's a mess. Um, right. the, you know, we're not paying our obligations. We're not paying the soldiers what we owed them. And so, you know, he starts to believe that, you know, the whole – eight years of war are going to come to nothing. It's like, this is going to be a disaster. We're going to end up back in the arms of some European power yeah. or at each other's throats fighting a war. Uh, what was the point of all that suffering and sacrifice? And he says, look, I will come to Philadelphia, uh, but it's got to be, you know, we got to like basically do the whole thing. 
you know, we got to take a, a radical delousing of this situation. We got to, we got to, we got to bone the chicken. You know, we got to do the whole thing. <laughs> not just amending. Amending isn't going to do it. We need a whole new thing. And so he was one of the people pushing. If he was going to go come out, let's go, let's go big or go home. You know, hmm. that's kind of unique because Washington's often portrayed as this fog, you know, old fart conservative type. But in fact, he really is saying, look, we got to fix this thing root and branch. And right. then let's do that. Let's not go and just throw a bunch of these small solutions at what's a huge problem. Huh. Yeah, you can't put a Band-Aid on, you know, yeah. bleeding yeah. out here. The malady <laughs> was radical, and it would take heroic efforts to fix the patient. So I think since we're talking about Washington and the convention, Lynn, I know we have some other uh, lines of thinking that we want to go down, but I would love to talk about the executive Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and just the idea of it, because it's so different from what's in the – like, it just it doesn't exist in the articles and That's right. um and 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 like we were talking about it's one of those things that is relatively novel in its construction at the time um but I, how did that come to be something that they realized they needed yeah and you know and, and, and as they're thinking about this guy Lynn? Uh, if i could just jump in real quick um i think several historians have suggested that it was written the way it was because everybody assumed that George Washington was going to be the first president. So it was sort of what they were willing to trust George Washington with, not, you know, looking forward, I guess, past George Washington's. Um, and he was also the president of the convention. So he's also there while they're writing these things that they assume will be his job. Yes. Although I want <laughs> Doug, I would love to say, now that Lynn has brought up that idea, and we did talk about his wiliness. <laughs> this, like, and I, I won't ask a leading question. Was this him being wily and like, I want to be the guy to do all this stuff? And I'm looking over the shoulder of all, all of these guys that are, that are setting up this thing. Is this is this an instance like that meeting at the at Mount Vernon where he was kind of maybe a little bit of a nudging in one in a particular direction? Yeah, yeah. Those are really really good questions. George Washington is is uh, very difficult to pin down because he is a master politician. And so you could argue from outcomes and say, well, he went to this meeting and then they made him the president. So that's what he wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he also protested quite a bit about not wanting to be the president. We know that he wanted to retire after two years as president. So it's a good question. And I don't know if I have a definitive answer for you. I do think he wanted a singular executive, a single executive mm-hmm. Um, because, uh, you know, there were other options and other things put forward during the mm-hmm. Constitutional Convention. I think he would have had to be a fool to not know that once they were getting towards a single executive that they were going to ask him to be the one. And in fact, right. yeah. you know, um, that's what that uh, frame, the framer from South Carolina, what's his face, says, you know, we wouldn't have given the office of the presidency so much power if we had not had our eye on the fixed on the first one for that office. And even Franklin when he got up to talk about the executive, you know, people had a hard time talking about the executive because Washington's sitting right there. And, and Franklin said, look, we know the first one is going to be a great one of great integrity, but who knows what kind of clowns we're going to get after this. So we got to exactly. talk about it. We sure. can't yep. just leave it not to be <laughs> talked about. So, so there definitely was that presumption around there. I think it probably crystallized for Washington in Philadelphia that that was the direction. The reality is when they're going to Philadelphia, they're coming with the Virginia plan. And the Virginia plan calls for a, a, an executive, but it doesn't 
specify how that executive will be designed. And George Mason, George Washington's neighbor, is in the Virginia group that comes to Philadelphia, and he's advocating for a tripartite executive, mm-hmm. you know, so, and he's very loud about that. So I imagine he's probably like out there saying, we're going to need a tripartite executive. You need, you need one, you need a person, you know, like a triumvirate, right. you know, like mm-hmm. the great triumvirate of, of, uh, of Rome, which worked out so great. You know, they were constantly <laughs> at war with each other, but uh, you know, where you're going to have basically a council of three, one from each region, South mm-hmm. middle colonies, New England. Gotcha. And the, it, because the, that, Regional difference was so powerful and so much on people's minds in terms of like, how are you going to balance the interests of these different, if you're going to create a new government, you're creating a real government, not a treaty, you know, you're creating a government that's going to have power to do things and enforce things. Uh, You know, how are you going to do that when everybody's so different? You know, from our vantage point of the 21st century, we're like, oh, they're a bunch of old white guys. They're all the same. No, they're very, very different. They're, you know, they're as different as, um, you know, Bobert and Chuck Schumer. I mean, they're, they're different. Right. They're different as rural and urban today. Yeah. Think of the most different politicians in our spectrum today. These are different, different um, interests uh, that are at play here. And so they're trying to figure that out. And so, yeah, so who knows? I, so, but it is clear, you know, over, over the course of time in Philadelphia that a single executive and a president, a one, a, a single person, is going to be designed to run the executive power uh, that, that Washington, it must have become very clear to him that that's, you know, he was going to be the guy that people wanted to be the first president. So, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, you'd have to be a complete fool, which some people thought he was. Um, I don't think he was a fool. It's a, definitely a job that, you know, invites a lot of critique. <laughs> like he must have known his reputation. Oh, by yeah, be impressed. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, some people certainly wanted to be pre- – I mean, Teddy Roosevelt wanted to be president. There's lots of people who wanted to be president. Oh, yeah. No, they want – people want to be president, but, like, you know, at, at some level, like, yeah, it, it, if, you're, if you're smart, I mean, like, you, you take that with a lot of, like, hey, well, this is going to be tough. I think Washington knew, Washington knew the challenges, you know, and the, the deepness of the challenges that were there. So, you know, at, at any rate, we've talked about him and, and the presidency, but, you know, in terms of the Constitutional Convention, hmm. uh, you, you know – he, he's there as, as, you know, he's president of the Constitution Convention, mm-hmm. which basically means he sits in the chair, the speaker's chair. He doesn't say much. He doesn't have a vote as president, but he has a vote as part of the group of, uh, of the Virginia delegates. So each state, again, only gets one vote, but they have different numbers of people in their different delegations. Uh, and he will, during, you know, certain sessions, go down and sit with the Virginians and talk about things. And people, sometimes people say, well, he never said anything. He the very end of the the, the thing, he, he advocates for um, a more democratic House of Representatives. That is to say, uh, one representative for every thirty thousand, as opposed to forty or fifty thousand. He he also Ed, Ed Larson wrote a book called The Return of George Washington, in which Ed makes the case that Washington is meeting with people uh, in the evenings. You know, he's meeting with different delegates regularly. He's having dinner with them, and he would often be seen to meet with somebody. The night before would be the person, the first person that he recognized who proposed one of the major compromises. So Mm -hmm. the the series of compromises that have to happen throughout that summer in Philadelphia. Uh, Ed Larson has Washington sort of as the man behind the scenes orchestrating the compromises. Because the the one thing the guy in the chair does get to do is he gets to recognize who he wants to recognize Mm -hmm. to speak. Who gets to speak first? 
who's had enough time, who gets to speak at all, you know, who's got their hand up and you just don't see them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's uh, exactly a, an amount of power that comes with anyone, that. Anyone, anyone, not seeing anyone, adjourn. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I mean, the speaker has some power yeah. in that regard. Um, so it's hard to say some of that stuff. You know, Ed maybe is a little more conspiratorial than I am, but uh, Washington definitely had strong beliefs on what he thought the 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 new uh, government had to be. And that's what's interesting is he, he didn't he wasn't so much like at Madison had specific outlines of, you know, certain things that he wanted. Washington just wanted the government to be able to do certain things, you know, to like do stuff, raise, yeah. raise attack, raise taxes, yeah. fund an army, you know, deal with uh, currency uh, and, you know, and the national debt, um, deal with the borders and foreign affairs. That's that. Um, does it, are they used to come? So was it, is it energy, Lynn? Am I remembering that correctly? Like political energy. They, they wanted the government to be able to do stuff. Yeah, like, you know? energetic, an energetic yeah. central power. Mm-hmm. So it could energetic, meaning it could enforce the laws that they right. passed. Yeah. So it, they wouldn't have all power. Like the Congress would be limited to do certain things. But the things that they were supposed to do, they were the ones that you know were making those decisions. And the states couldn't get in the way. The states had to be subservient to the central authority and the central authority had to be energetic enough to enforce that, that law. So you see this in, in his own presidency, like the whiskey rebellion, you know, the, the law is passed. It's an excise tax, you know, on whiskey production that's passed by the legislature and it's hated by huge chunks of the country considered to be, you know, unfair, unjust, you know, the product of a bunch of rich asshats in, you know, Wall Street, screwing the little man again. And they, you know, and they're protesting it. And they probably was a bad law. But Washington, as the president, wanted an energetic government that could enforce that law. And the proper way to change a law was to have the legislature change the law. It wasn't to, to veto it in the streets, essentially. You know, it wasn't right. using violence and insurrection. So he wanted an energetic government that, that could enforce the right, uh, the right things. But in terms of like the structure, he wasn't a constitutional thinker, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of like how many delegates and two houses and all that stuff. I mean, that's, right. that's, that was that's more right. Madison's interest than some of the others. Yeah. The, the, the little guy with all the ideas. <laughs> leave, leave, yeah. Leave to him. yeah. Yeah. Well, Madison wanted, but Madison wanted a lot of things he didn't get, right. He wanted a right. veto on state laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you imagine? I mean, that'd be, <laughs> That's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. A lot of laws. There's some pretty, pretty wily state laws out there. Pretty crazy state laws out there, too. <laughs> yeah. And he also wanted, right, he wanted representation by population in both mm. houses. Mm. Right. Oh, that's that interesting. So that was the first big compromise, Huge right? The first big compromise yeah. was on, on the, you had the small state plan and the large state plan, right? Mm-hmm. So, so let's get into the, into the juice of the matter here, right? So, how do you how, how do you represent the articles had had represented based on you know based on state so each each person you could send two up to seven but you only get one vote so each state's right. equal it's basically right. like the senate you know mm-hmm. each state no matter how big no matter how wealthy no matter how important no matter how smart the people in that state was they all got the same vote as as any other small dink, rinky dink state made up of maniacs right and so it's hard. It's hard to give up. It's hard to give up power, right? You know when it, I mean, Virginia doesn't is the largest state by far, and it's Madison 
writes the Virginia plan, they're gonna, they want to have Virginia having more say than anybody else. Because you're talking about real laws now. You could tax people and you could do all kinds of things that are going to impact people's lives. You're like, well, you know, we should have more say than anybody else because we come from this rich place. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So they figure out, they work their way through all of these compromises and, and, and yeah. sort of figure out stuff. I guess the, one of the, the culminating thing that happens here is how do they get rid of the, is that, is there a technical term for this Lynn that I'm not, that I don't know? Like how do they, like the, 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 the articles that were already existed and how do they, uh, like, yeah. like what, yeah. what is, yeah, well, how do they transition? Well, so, yeah. So basically, so, so at the end of the convention, they passed this constitution, they've signed it, and George Washington writes a letter to the Congress under the Articles Confederation. Okay. As you know, is is sort of like a letter that appears in all the papers with the Constitution, because he's the president of the convention. You know, enclosed fiend, please find this new constitution that we created, <laughs> you know, based on your recommendation. Now, what had what then happened was at the Congress, after the fact, the, the Congress um was pressured by Madison, by others, basically to to accept Washington's letter as legitimately something that they had authorized them to create. So basically they're they're changing the record, right? So originally Congress had just asked them to give us some suggestions for amendments, and they show up with a brand new government and the instructions of how to put it into place, which is once this thing is ratified by nine states, it goes into effect you know, without any reference at all to the Articles of Confederation government or any of that stuff. So basically, you could have like, you theoretically could have alternative governments, right? Sure. You could have one ratified by all the states, and then the Articles of Confederation just sort of rolling along over here, trying trying to survive. But what happened was that the Articles of Confederation Congress basically accepted the offering of Washington and said, yes, thank you for this. And once that goes into effect, you know, we will be no more, you know. And so that's essentially what happened. So the Constitution, you know, was ratified over the next whatever it was, 13 months or something, from the fall of 1787 to 1788, the end of 1788. Um, and you ended up getting 11 of 13 states to ratify it before the first Congress under the Constitution. So they were called under the rules set by the U.S. Constitution, not by the Articles. They show up in New York, and um, and then a month later, they inaugurate the president as the first president. Of course, he'd been elected by the, the new constitution rules, the Electoral College. And then they, they show up, and they just they start doing things. And the, one of the first things to do is they bring on all the things that were passed by the Articles of Confederation that were mm-hmm. of any importance, hmm. um, and, and either passed them as laws or they wrote different laws. Hmm. And in this case, the, the, the big one was the, the Northwest Ordinance. Um, yeah. And so then, you know, that, that first Congress sets up the judiciary branch. It sets up the executive branch. Uh, it creates the government out of the from the Constitution. And uh, and then at the end of that, they pass all the, you know, the resolutions that are ultimately going to become known as the Bill of Rights, the first amendments to the Constitution, which, you know, these amendments have been agreed to as part of the ratification process. So, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, it really was. A revolution in government, a revolution in politics and the way the way things get done in America, done without any bloodshed. Yeah. Uh, and it's an ex- yeah. it's an extraordinary achievement, really. 
to, to do it because we've been living under that constitution now for, my God, what is it, 2024? Do the math. It's in 1789. Yeah. 225 years. So I know we're getting near the end and time completely is flying by. And I want to make sure we talk about one issue that I feel like comes up a lot, it, you know, yeah. in recent uh, history and present. And we talked at the beginning of the podcast about adding states. So bringing on different states, their territories, then their states. But we never talk about losing states or states leaving ah. and this idea of nullification and States being able to look at a federal law and say, we're, we don't agree, we're not going to follow that. Right. So yeah. can you give us an idea of what the founding fathers at that time yeah. um, thought of this idea of nullification and the federal law versus a state law? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is this is this is the question we could have spent all the time talking about this. Yeah. For, this for sure. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is all government. Ultimately, it's based on people agreeing to the rules. This mm -hmm. is why norms are important. When people violate norms and say things like, oh, you know, I don't agree with you. I was actually elected. Uh, it's bad because, you know, the reality is ultimately, it, you know, you, you don't have mechanisms to stop people from, uh, from disobeying the rules that, you know, in, in constitutional crises. Mm -hmm. um, this happens when you have a government like ours, which is, uh, which the Constitution purports to be, you know, a federal arrangement between states which have given up aspects of their sovereignty and independence, but the states, you know, not all aspects. In fact, the Constitution says certain things are retained by the states, it enumerates and limits certain power. And of course, our Supreme Court, as the ultimate arbiter of the meaning of the Constitution, has, has issued all kinds of verdicts on these issues throughout time and takes on more and more of a role. Um, in the founding period, uh, you know, the idea of, of if Congress passed a law that a state didn't like, there were a lot of different ideas about what to do about it. The first ideas driven by really the opposition to the Alien Sedition Acts, hmm. though there's some earlier examples, you know, was James Madison himself working with Thomas Jefferson, working through the states of Virginia and Kentucky to say that these laws were unconstitutional and therefore they were null and void. Uh, and in their case, they were saying essentially that the federal government did not have the power to uh, infringe upon the rights of individuals, in this case, the Sedition Act. And there was no uh, criminal law, federal criminal law. There was no common law federally. This was a novel power. It's not granted in the Constitution. Mm. And so essentially, it's as if it never existed. So it didn't need like a formal process. It was a more of a political statement, mm -hmm. um, you know, that this didn't exist. And in that sense, it, it's connected more to the way the Americans opposed the Stamp Act that the British passed. So they're basically saying, you don't have the right to pass this right. uh, because we don't have representation. No taxation mm -hmm. without representation. And, and in the Jeffersonian case, you don't have the right to pass these laws because the Constitution doesn't give you that right and the federal government cannot violate the, the uh, natural rights of individuals in this way. That's what the Kentucky Resolution said, which Jefferson wrote. Now, that's very different from what the nullifiers of the Calhoun era say. Now, Calhoun will look back to the Jeffersonian guys 
and say, we're doing what they did. But in fact, what Calhoun argues is that any state has the sovereign right to oppose any law that the federal government passes if they don't like it, hmm. that they have a nullification uh, power that is because they're sovereign. And so they could overturn anything. Now, that was um, Madison, who was still alive when this is happening, said that's absurd. That's not at all what we were saying, because um, basically what you're saying is there's a legitimate tariff law passed by the government, which has the power to pass tariffs. And you're saying any state can just overturn right. that because they're a state. That, you know, that nullification movement and constitutional movement actually um, was an argument that the old Federalists used to make in the, the Hartford Convention effort. In fact, if you look at Calhoun, he went to Yale, right? And Yale's president at the time he was there was Timothy Dwight. And Timothy Dwight was the president of the Hartford Convention, which almost seceded from the Union during the War of 1812. So those so Yaleys is the problem, not the <laughs> good old Jeffersonians uh, uh, at Virginia are not the problem. It's the Yaleys always causing trouble in this case. But yeah, you're right, though. I mean, it's sort of like the union is supposed to be perpetual. It says it's perpetual. The mm. states do not the states do not have authority to pass judgment on tariffs. Right. Um, but what you know, when when you get into these questions of human rights and natural rights, you know, it, it gets um, you know, it gets really fraught. And we in our day and age, we've the Supreme Court has become this sort of arbiter between these issues. But, you know, you could see you could imagine a time where, where, you know, these states have tried, obviously, in the Civil War, tried to secede and claim they had a right to secede from this union. And, and it is, you know, on the one hand, the states existed before the Constitution, right? The states mm -hmm. agreed to the Constitution. Right. So it's some, somehow you think, well, I guess if the states agreed to the Constitution, they ought to be able to say, OK, it ain't working for us anymore. We're out. See you later. You know, we'll take the consequences of our actions. Um, sure. But, you know, I don't um, – that is not what was intended by uh, a more perfect union, that's for sure. You know, and even the articles, that I said, said that this is a perpetual union uh, that these states have been, been involved in. And certainly, uh, you know, the territories that existed before the any, – any state that's not one of the first 13 probably shouldn't have any – any conceptual, you know, theoretical <laughs> right to succeed, except maybe Texas. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, federal, people who are federal territories before they were states. So you can't really get out of that conundrum, it seems to me. But, Once you know, in, you're in. Yeah. but then you, you have the right of revolution, I guess, you know, which all mm. people have, uh, which, the, which our founders clearly believed in. So right. mean, they ultimately split from Great Britain. And it's always been the challenge. It was a real challenge in Latin America, right? It's like, how do you go from, you know, how do you keep these people from just declaring independence? Right. Um, you know, the, uni the Union of Gran Granada, which Bolivar was trying to, to set up, Colombia, you know, all these, these states basically that are coming out of the Spanish Empire as it's collapsing. They tried to create Gran Granada, but then you have independence movements and civil wars and spinoffs in part because they're not strong enough to make, to hold them together. I mean, ultimately, if the Union Army didn't win the Civil War, they would have seceded. And then you probably would have had secessions that come after that. Right. Because once once it happens once, I mean, right. It, How legitimate harder, is the claim people, to hold it together? Yeah. Like, are we really going to fight to keep Oregon now? I mean, it's like <laughs> all these people died to try to keep the South. But now all these people in, in the crazy Northwest are, 
are trying to secede from the East. And I mean, who knows what would happen? I mean, that yeah. was what Fisk was, Fisk was worried about. I mean, Fisk was worried ultimately that, you know, the logic of independence is just going to, you know, it's just going to keep going. You know, it is unique. United States is unique, I think, in the sense of such a large country with such a strong, you know, uh, belief in the spirit of liberty and yet able to hang together. What are what are we hanging together for and right. why? I mean, right. the union, the union, Washington has always had always argued that the union is the only thing that assures our, our independence and our freedom, mm-hmm. because once you start separating out, you lose a lot. You get, you can become quite weak, in fact. Um, and the world is not a safe place for independent small states yet. Uh, just look That's at the Ukrainians yeah. uh, and you know, their struggle. That's very true. You, know, yeah. you take these things for granted in times of mm-hmm. peace. It's like, you know, what do we need this union for? Everybody's it's made of a bunch of maniacs. And <laughs> uh, they're worse scenarios too. Yeah. God knows what the Canadians would do to us if we all split up, win our separate ways. <laughs> I, I wouldn't trust them when my back to the... <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, it's uh, notwithstanding how serious the, the you know uh, the conversations these days are about nullification and secession and, and all of that, because, you know, I think they, they, have, they have varying degrees of seriousness to them. But I do think, it you know, this was an incredibly yeah. thoughtful uh, walkthrough, you know, the document that they're all talking about. That you know the creation yeah. of the Constitution, why it, why it exists the way it does, and what why it is as strong as it is, and that's a great it's answer to what we're doing. It, yeah, why it's an imperfect solution to the challenge of governing in a representative form a very diverse, very self interested, dynamic population over a vast territory. Right. Um, the territory is less vast than it was then, in the sense that you know I can go see you tomorrow, Isaac, if I had the Right. interest or, or the, you know, the time. Uh, but we could certainly, we can have this conversation now. I mean, communication's instantaneous, yeah. you know, in their time to be able to govern, mutually govern and, and feel like you're part of something when you, you know, when you're so far flung and far, far afield, it was really remarkable the scale uh, uh, that they were able to, to, to create something that lasted that long. And I think now we are suffering from the fact that we do have instantaneous communication and we, mm-hmm. In some ways, young people want a real nation in the sense that we don't have different states. They've got all these weird arcane powers that were given them because they were necessary to get people to be willing to work together. People want, you know, they want justice and they want it right away. And they want it based on these set of principles that obviously are the best set. Um, right. and, 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 you know, and it's we're not that kind of nation. You know, we're really not. And, uh, and so that, that patience has always been built into our crazy uh, system, which requires all sorts of compromise. It requires just to be willing to have, you know, a state of 500,000 people having the same amount of power as a state of 60 million people or whatever the hell, you know, California is now, Texas, <laughs> I don't know how much you are, but, <laughs> you know, and, Feels and like it's, it's like, yeah, it's not, it's not a democracy in, in that sense. It's not a direct right. democracy, certainly. I mean, right. its ethos. Its ethos is democratic, and the idea that the people will rule, and it's supposed to be representative, and that's changed over time. Of who's who's being representative, and who can be considered as a an American, and you know, what's astonishing is that we still have the same constitution that had a very different set of ideas about race and gender and class, mm-hmm. uh, disability. I mean, 
all it would sorts be of unrecognizable. Things. You know, even yeah. in, as far as economics go, they wouldn't recognize it at yeah. all. Um, right. And but and I, I think you pointed out one thing that's really really a, a useful thing, especially when people are frustrated, and 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 it's easy, especially you know in election years where there's a lot going on, that can be very frustrating. And post election, obviously, there's a whole subset of the population that is frustrated. Um, but the inefficiencies yeah. are a feature, not a flaw. Um, and you know, it's part of the reason why mm-hmm. you know we're still potsing around, <laughs> you know, with, with that constitution, that's 200. I don't know if we've actually figured out the math, 200 odd <laughs> some years old at this point. <laughs> this is a history uh, podcast, not a math podcast, damn it. Um, yeah. 30. That's impressive. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in the interest of everyone's time uh, and, and the listeners, obviously we can have, um, if you so choose, you know, reach out to us. And if you'd like to have Doug back to talk, talk a little bit more about uh, another subject, so, you know. Yeah, give me an upvote. Come on. I, we're yeah. just getting started here. I feel like we're just about to go, get into it. You know, absolutely. So These folks don't even know that, that I interviewed you for a documentary for like six and a half hours at one point. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know hey, what they're I'm in for if they ask for it. <laughs> Isaac, I'm ready for the reshoots anytime. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, obviously, uh, you know, we said at the beginning that you, you're the CEO over at Mount Vernon, the uh, John and Adrian Mars president and CEO of George Washington Mount Vernon. Vernon. Um, but uh, how could people, you know, uh, if they're interested in your work, um, interested in Mount Vernon, yeah. how, how can they uh, reach out and how can they find you? Well, I hope they visit us at George Washington's Mount Vernon, mountvernon.org, and, you know, become a member and support our mission of education and preservation of uh, the ancestral home of George Washington. Uh, and we do all sorts of educational programs around the nation. So please check us out. We have our own podcast series as well as uh, all sorts of documents. You could spend years on our webpage reading and reading and reading some more. So uh, in- enjoy. That's, That's great. great. You have several books if people look for you online oh, as yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you can look, Google me and, there you and go. dismiss all the bad things. You know, the <laughs> they're lies. We'll, we'll put some links in the, in the description for some of Doug's books, as well as the links to Mount Vernon um, in general. Uh, so, but thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank but a recent you. book on the critical period. You might find yes. uh, an yes. engaging way to pursue some more questions about that, that era. Very relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Wonderful. Th- thanks again. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media. Produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins. Edited and mixed by Curtis Fritsch. Opening theme music by Sheena Biratella.